Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. The U.S. Supreme Court just finished up its November sitting. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. And today we're going to take a deep dive into the oral arguments. So, Jordan, the Supreme Court, as I mentioned, just finished up its November sitting and it heard 12 cases. And once again, almost all of those cases were argued by Supreme Court specialists, that is, individuals who have argued five or more cases before the Supreme Court. And in particular, 20 of the 34 advocates that argued before the court during the November sitting were Supreme Court veterans. Indeed, two of the people, Mayor Brown's Andy Pincus and Williams and Connolly's Canon Shanmugam, actually argued two cases in the sitting. And what's really amazing about the cases that Andy argued was that not only were they argued in the same sitting, but they were actually argued in the same week. Whoa. That's right. On Monday, he argued an arbitration case called Lamps Plus. And on Wednesday, he returned to the high court to argue a class action case, Frank versus Gauss. Wow. It'd be cool if we could ask him what it was like to do that. Well, you're just in luck, Jordan, because today joining us is going to be Andy Pincus. He's going to tell us how he survived this feat. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So one question that we have is, how did it come about that you wound up arguing both of these cases in the same week? Well, what happened was, uh, obviously, I'd been working on the Lamps Plus case right along from the petition for cert stage, and other folks in our firm had been had been working on Frank B. Gauss, and then there was a sort of a last-minute switch in who was going to argue that case uh, after the cases had been scheduled. So uh, that resulted in, in me being uh, chosen to argue uh, those two cases in one week. Hmm. And I guess... Um... You know, I'm just wondering how involved the clerk's office is with scheduling these things. You know, you're not the only advocate to have argued uh, two cases in the sitting uh, this term. And so just wondering what the clerk's involvement with um, those kinds of situations is. So ordinarily, if someone is, is slated to argue two cases that get set, uh, that, that are going to be set for a single argument session, um, the clerk uh, can sometimes uh, place them so that they're at the beginning and the end of the argument session to to give that advocate you know a little bit of a break between uh, between arguments. But uh, unfortunately, or just the luck of the draw for me, uh, the schedule was set before uh, it turned out that I would be arguing the second case. So uh, there was no with the with the schedule set, we just had to sort of take things the way they were. And had you ever come close to any situation like this before? Obviously, you've argued a ton of Supreme Court cases, but have you ever even come close to arguing two cases in a week before? No. <laughs> what about? And I wouldn't recommend it. It's a high stress level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit about um, what your prep was like? I mean, what was the weekend before these arguments? Uh, what did that look like for you? Well, luckily, I sort of planned things out uh, pretty far in advance um, since. Since I had been working right along on Lamps Plus and, and Frank B. Gauss was the new case, uh, I, I thought it made sense to sort of start uh, at the end of September when I, I started preparing for these cases to, to sort of block out my time so I would spend a bunch of time getting up to speed and, and quite well prepared for Frank. And then around about the middle of October, turn to preparing for 
uh, the LAMPS Plus case. Huh. That's interesting. So my, so the, the sort of, what I thought was new case, really want to get, make sure I have my arms around it. And then I could turn to the case that I was more familiar with and which was going to be first. And mm-hmm. so it seemed to make sense to prepare for that second because that would be close to the argument. And then I'd have the day and a half in between to sort of refresh my recollection on the preparation for the second case. Oh, yeah. That whole day and a half must have <laughs> given you a lot of prep time. <laughs> yeah. So obviously it came as somewhat of a surprise or it wasn't totally planned that you were going to be arguing both of these cases in the same week. Is that something that you had to discuss with your clients that you were representing in order to sort of assure them that that isn't going to be an issue? Obviously, you've argued a ton of Supreme Court cases, and that's why uh, they wanted you there. But is that something that you sort of needed to discuss with them ahead of time to smooth it over at all? Yeah, obviously, it was important to make sure both clients were comfortable and knew that that was going to happen and assure them that I had a plan that uh, was going to make sure that I was at peak preparation uh, for both cases. And so what what is the prep for a Supreme Court oral argument normally like when you're just, you know, arguing just the one really simple, easy case uh, before the Supreme Court? Well, you know, if, if it's a case that you've worked on right along, Obviously, you're thinking not in terms of oral argument, but the the key thing for the court always is, what's the legal rule that you're advocating? How does that legal rule relate uh, to other relevant areas of the law? And most importantly, and this is why so many of the questions at oral argument revolve around hypotheticals, how is that legal rule going to apply in a variety of situations? Because although the court obviously is concerned with the fact pattern in front of it, it has to be concerned with a whole myriad of variants uh, and assure itself that the legal rule you're advocating is going to lead to appropriate results in all in those range of cases. So starting at the brief writing stage, it's important to think about those things hmm. and make sure that the, the argument that's being made in the brief is going to lead, is going to support good answers to those questions at oral argument. But hmm. once the brief writing is done, you know, my preparation process is to sit down with the briefs, read through them uh, with a very skeptical eye, and uh, write down every question that occurs to me as I go through the briefs, uh, and then questions that occur to me as I start to read the key cases, and make sure that I've thought through answers uh, to those questions. I think the answers, again, sort of fit the overall uh, legal picture that the briefs have painted. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we really appreciate you taking some time to speak with us today. I know that the court has asked for additional briefing in one of these cases, so um, your work isn't quite done yet, but we appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about this. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot. Well, that was a fun interview. Yeah, always good to hear from the people who are actually doing the arguing instead of just arguing with us here. Kimberly, so speaking of arguments, you took a look recently at some of the uh, justices' habits during these arguments, and it looks like you found that the female justices have been speaking first at the arguments in a recent article that you published here. What 
prompted you to look into this? Well, you know, for many years now, I've been sitting into oral arguments, and I just kept noticing that it seemed like on a number of these cases, Justice Ginsburg was the first out of the gate to ask these questions. And oftentimes they, they were always these like really detailed questions about the record or some civil mm-hmm. procedure issue um, that she had. So I wanted to take a look at the numbers and know, well, it is Justice Ginsburg uh, first out of the gate most of the time. Uh, it's kind of piggybacking on some other research we had done about how Justice, or Justice Ginsburg is really the fastest writer on the court. Right. She tends to uh, write cases. And she had the first opinion already this term. Yeah, she had the first opinion uh, this term, getting out, you know, the opinion in just 39 days. Um, so, you know, this was kind of piggybacking on that research. And we found that, yes, in fact, Justice Ginsburg is first uh, more than any of the other justices. In fact, so far, the Supreme Court has argued 22 cases, and she's been the first questioner in nine of them. Uh, but the other interesting thing was that Justice Sotomayor um, was also one of the top questioners. She was in the top three questioners in 16 of the 22 cases, um, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in the top three questioner in 15. Um, So that just seemed really interesting to me. And, you know, right out of the gate, we saw an example of the ladies being first in oral arguments. Here's Justice Kagan, uh, followed then by Justice Ginsburg in the court's first argument of the term, Weyerhaeuser. Bounds of critical habitat, and it would be perverse. Mr. Bishop, may, may I um, offer you a hypothetical just to understand the scope of your argument, which is a bit unclear to me. So in my hypothetical, there's... ...and existence are present. But if you use the migratory bird example, then we have here the ephemeral ponds, which are uh, supposed, supposed to be ideal for breeding. So it's, it's a habitat... Uh, that is suitable for breeding. Uh, And although she wasn't first in uh, that particular case, Justice Sotomayor does interject quite a bit with her uh, very distinctive, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. So, Kimberly, in researching and writing this article, were you able to find anything or did anyone have an opinion about why it is that the female justices on the court are speaking first, if if there is any particular reason? Yeah, well, we asked a number of people why they thought that might be. And in particular, uh, we pointed to a recent law review article um, noting that the female justices are interrupted more during oral argument, both by attorneys and by their male colleagues. Um, Kind of a really cringeworthy example of this is Justice Sotomayor and advocate Burt Rain in the affirmative action Fisher argument. Here you can take a listen. How do you know that a Hispanic or an African-American student can't be in the top ten at what they call an integrated high-performing high school? That's a stereotypical assumption. What you're saying basically is, is this is what the Fifth Circuit concluded in which the school basically agrees, okay? If you don't consider race, the holistic percentage, whatever it is, is going to be virtually all white. And that is and incorrect. Why? And that is and an assumption saying, that no. has no basis in this record. Well, it's a stereotypical no, racist it's assumption. That's it's what it is. It's not, because that, of with reality all deference, that Justice Ryan, Benito but, wants to rely on. Let me finish my point. 
He's right. For their educational needs, there are... And that was a, a case dealing with equality of all things. That's right. And you uh, can just make out uh, the Chief Justice trying to play uh, traffic cop, which uh, Sotomayor recently said she thinks she's been noticing the chief too more often as a result of that law review article. Um, and it may be that with some new members on the court, the court's getting a little more deferential to ladies. Um, here's Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kagan in a pretty endearing exchange um, earlier this term. Uh, Mr. Frank. We, we, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. No, no, please go ahead. No. Justice Kagan? I was going to change the subject. <laughs> so was I. <laughs> Jurisdiction? Yes. Go for it. <laughs> uh, may I ask you, Mr. Frank, to... Um, to uh, but when we actually talk to some people about, uh, you know, the reasons why the female justices might be talking first, they really didn't think that it had a lot to do with um, actually avoiding interruptions, mm. which was kind of our initial kind of a hunch. And in particular, we talked to um, Tanya Jacoby, who w had authored that 2017 Law Review article about interruptions, and she pointed out that, you know, Justice Kagan actually usually chimes in later than her female counterparts, but she gets interrupted just as much as um, Ginsburg and Sotomayor. And on the other side, uh, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts uh, weighs in pretty early in the arguments, and he gets interrupted um, much fewer times than Ginsburg or Sotomayor or Kagan. Well, it's good to be the chief or a guy on the Supreme Court. Or both. Right. Yes. So speaking of guys on the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, that's great. We, um, you know, another thing to talk about during oral arguments this term is Justice Kavanaugh. This is first full sitting. He missed mm -hmm. the first week of October sitting. And there were some surprises from Justice Kavanaugh during the sitting, right, Jordan? I think so. Definitely at least a few cases that I recall there are things to note there. And that's in the Cougar Den case, the Garza case, and the Bucklew case. The the Cougar Den case was the one that involved a Native American treaty and a state, you know, Washington state, who wanted to collect taxes. And the Cougar Den said, uh, and that was uh, based on, related to the Yakima Nation there. And they said that this uh, treaty going back uh, many years essentially exempted them from being able to, uh, exempted them from having to pay this tax to the state, and it seemed like Justice Kavanaugh uh, sided with the, the tribe there in that case, or he at least was going out of his way to point out how much the tribe gave up in uh, entering into this treaty with the government, even noting uh, how much land it was uh, essentially uh, similar to Justice Kavanaugh's home state of Maryland. The, 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 but the effect, the effect was that in taking your goods to market, which was the promise, in exchange for a huge area of land, an uh, area of land the size of the state of Maryland that was given up by the tribe, uh, that you could take your goods to market. And, and this burdens, as Justice Kagan said, this burdens substantially their ability to take goods to market. To state the obvious, the value of, current value of the land the tribe gave up 
is enormous. Right? It's a third of the state of Washington, I believe, Your Honor. Yeah, that argument in Cougar Den was really um, interesting to watch. And that's because, you know, the questioning uh, were all coming from the ends of the bench mm-hmm. with, you know, the Trump nominees, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and then Obama nominees, um, Kagan and Sotomayor. And they all seem to be on the same side. Uh, and that is on the side of the Indians here who do not want to pay these taxes. So it'll be interesting um, to see that case. But you also mentioned um, Garza and Bucklew. Tell us about why uh, Justice Kavanaugh's remarks were surprising in those cases. Sure. So the the Garza case is somewhat of one of the more low pro, low profile cases of the term. It involves a, a criminal uh, defendant who essentially it involves waivers of appeal. When defendants plead guilty, sometimes the government will have them uh, sign what are known as appeal waivers. And the defendant here in this case still wanted his attorney to appeal despite the appeal waiver. Uh, it sounds sort of simple at first. How can you appeal if you signed an appeal waiver? But but. And, but an appeal waiver does not necessarily waive all of your rights on appeal. And that's obvious to people on the defense side. But what was interesting in the argument was that uh, Justice Kavanaugh seemed uh, sympathetic and, and knowledgeable about that aspect of appeals too, given that Justice Kavanaugh sat as a federal appeals court judge for over 10 years. And he made that clear during the argument uh, in a colloquy with the defendant's uh, attorney there sort of pointing out, you know, hey, uh, it doesn't uh, just because you sign an appeal waiver, it doesn't mean that you don't have any claims. Because so appeal wa- an appeal waiver never precludes any and all possible appeals. That is what is undisputed right. on this record. And that, that, that's what the federal courts have concluded. Right. But it's very simple. I think you're agreeing yes. for the court when they get an appeal. So if, to pick up Justice Ginsburg's point, if the <laughs> appeal is reinstated, get the appeal, well, most issues are probably going to be within the scope of the waiver, and then there might be, in some cases, something outside the scope of the waiver. Oftentimes, those are not meritorious, of course, and are quickly dealt with. Sometimes they are, though. Uh, it seems pretty simple for most appellate courts to deal with that, and I'm not sure there's any evidence of a problem. And if there's not evidence of a problem, why complicate the laws, just as Breyer says? Those questions, if they wind up bearing out in Kavanaugh's vote in the case, are not a bad sign for the defendant there. And then the last one, Bucklew, when we were talking about, um, you know, preparing for this podcast, you you said you thought Bucklew uh, really had the most surprising comments from Justice Kavanaugh. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So just to set up a bit going into this argument, Kavanaugh really can be said to hold the tie-breaking vote, and that's because the court was essentially split four to four in terms of its current members besides Justice Kavanaugh in terms of how they voted on the initial decision whether to grant or deny Russell Bucklew's stay when the court first uh, got his case uh, back in last spring. And so there were... Right, because this is a capital case and that was a request to stay as execution. Exactly. And so the way that, um, you know, there were the four uh, Republican appointees besides Kavanaugh all would have voted to allow Russell Bucklew's execution to go forward. And all of the four Democratic appointees on the other side, they were joined by now retired Justice Kennedy in order to grant Bucklew the reprieve. And so once Kennedy retired, uh, there were people who, you know, not knowing how how Kavanaugh would rule on this, but not necessarily thinking he would be favorable to Bucklew's claim, thinking that the retirement of Justice Kennedy could wind up, you know, essentially hastening Bucklew's death. But we saw during the argument that Justice Kavanaugh's questions of the government's lawyer there were actually pretty good questions for Bucklew. Uh, He was pressing the state's lawyer really on 
what can the limits be for uh, cruel and unusual punishment against an inmate? Are you saying even if the method creates gruesome and brutal pain, you can still do it because there's no alternative? Uh, I believe that any petitioner who is claiming that it would create gruesome and brutal pain must, under Bayes and Glossop, offer an alternative method that significantly So you're the saying pain. that even if the method imposes gruesome, brutal pain, that is, you I, can still go forward? Well, I would say, again, that that petitioner has to. If they is that a to, yes? Yes, it is, Your Honor. And that is the holding of Glossop. The holding of Glossop was, I mean, th- th- these kinds of predictions were made in Glossop. The closest facts of the case, the closest facts to that hypothetical were the facts of Glossop. In Glossop, the argument was that everyone Is there any limit on that? And this is the case where the inmate, Russell Bucklew, has all of these really bad health conditions that he says will be really incredibly exacerbated if the state goes ahead and executes him by its preferred method of lethal injection. And so... One of the issues that came up during the argument is what an inmate needs to prove to show that it's cruel and unusual under the Eighth Amendment and what burden an inmate has to provide an alternative means of execution. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, watching oral arguments is really interesting. And these things that you pointed out by Justice Kavanaugh um, will be something to keep our eyes on. But uh, I think we don't want to overstate the issue too much. I mean, of course, we're going to have to see how Justice Kavanaugh comes down and the ultimate you know, vote in these opinions and see if, um, you know, these questions really reflect what he's actually thinking about the case or more, he's playing more of a devil's advocate. Right. Um, Is he playing devil's advocate? Is he trying to sort of, you know, maybe still even create some more distance for himself from his confirmation hearings, which still aren't even that long ago? Obviously, if he, you know, say he say that isn't really his position and he is against Bucklew if he were to come out and make that clear during the argument then that's something that we would be talking about now so regardless of how he comes down in the case you know maybe he wants to avoid that of course there's no reason for now not to take him at his word but like you said we'll have to wait and see until the votes are cast well thank you everybody for following along with our deep dive into the november sitting as always you can follow all of the latest supreme court news with bloomberg law at news.bloomberglaw.com thanks so much for listening don't you want to thank people for listening jordan Thank you. It's fabulous. I didn't want to interrupt you.